Hello. The reading tonight is from Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Is there room for me? One way or another, we are constantly asking ourselves that question. I don't mean that the elevated, elevator door opens, there are plenty of people inside, and we ask ourselves, is there room for me? Am I getting in? I mean the emotional, the relational question. You walk up to a group of students at school. You walk up to a group at supper here at church. And even if you know them, you're still wondering, will they welcome you in? Will you be accepted? Perhaps our work colleagues, at morning tea or at lunch break, will I be part of the conversation? Will they allow me in? Will they accept what I have to say? Will there be room for me? We think, don't we, that our families... That family is a place where there'll always be room for you. You'll always be welcome. But that's not always the case for everyone, is it? And somehow we think at Christmas this will always be true. You go to an outside community event and uh, everyone's warm and fuzzy and we're all together and there's room for everyone. But we know, don't we, and this might be your experience as well, that Christmas is hardest of all. You are there with many people and yet there's not really room for you. Some people wonder this about church they think church is a holy huddle and you need to come from the right family and your children need to know how to behave when they're there. Otherwise there won't be room for you. And perhaps you have this idea even about God. Would God have room for you? Why is it that we wonder this? Why are we concerned? Why are we fearful about this? I think it's because of people's, other people's expectations. Uh, we know that they can be exclusive sometimes, that they expect certain things of us. But also, I think, it's because we know ourselves. And there are things about ourselves that we don't like. And there's a certain shame. We're constantly asking the question, is there room for me? Of course, we all know at the first Christmas that there was no room for Jesus. You can see it up here on the screen, I think, uh, the last verse from the Bible passage we just read, or you could have it open in front of you from Luke 2. While they were there, 
the time came for the baby to be born, in verse 6, and Mary gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Everyone loves a, a good birth announcement, and we love to hear uh, the weight, don't we? Which has always got to be in pounds for some reason. We love to hear how long the baby is when you stretch it out. We want to know the hair colour. We want to know the date and the time. We want to know what the label was like. Is the mother doing okay? And most of all, how's the father feeling? We'd like to see some photos on Facebook or Instagram. We love a good birth announcement. And frankly, this is not a good birth announcement. Have another look. Verse 6. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Could you be any more vague about the date and the time? Not really. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. Well, there's a detail, but you already knew that in the story. That was predicted. She wrapped him in cloths. That's normal. And placed him in a manger. That's abnormal. Now I know that we all think that that's the normal in the first century around Christmas time. That's where you put babies. You went out and bought a manger at the baby shop and put your baby in the manger. Because that's what they called them. Is that right? No. What is a manger? It's an animal food box. What do we call that? A, a trough. You throw the dirty, mucky food in and you don't care that it's dirty and mucky and what other creatures might be crawling around inside because it's for the animals. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger. Why? Well, we all know the story because there was a census, wasn't there? And so they all had to go to their old ancestral town. And so this town in Bethlehem, which was normally a little village, had become overrun with out-of-town visitors. It was peak time. And peak time for the Bethlehem Inn. Every room was taken. And this young couple had to walk 140 kilometres from Nazareth. And because Mary was walking a little slower for some reason than all the others, they got there late. And as they arrived above the door in big letters, no vacancy. And you can just picture it, can't you? Mary turns to her beloved and said, I told you to book ahead, but you wouldn't listen. Joseph, feeling uh, desperate, uh, knocks on the door. The innkeeper, rushed off his feet, having served the patrons at the bar, runs to the door, is about to tell them to get lost when he sees the belly. Feels sorry for her and offers her the stable. Well, that's pretty poor, thinks Joseph, but it's the best offer he's going to get. So feeling guilty and hoping to make amends, he runs around the stable, sweeping up and vacuuming and wiping things down, puts up a home sweet home sign, makes a nice seat for Mary to feel comfortable on, and she feels so at home that the baby just pops out. 
and all's well that ends well. Like it says, because there was no room for them in the inn. Is that really what happened? Can you find any mention of the innkeeper here? Does it actually say that there were too many people in Bethlehem? That that was the problem? Do you really think that there was a Bethlehem inn? When I first started down this this line of thinking, I used to think, and I've said this to people, that there simply were no inns in the first century. There were no baby boomer generations spending their children's inheritance. There were no people doing flights everywhere. There were no people going to the Holy Land for their tourism visits. Why would there be inns? But I learnt something this week. In Jesus' story, the parable of the Good Samaritan, there's an inn. Remember the guy gets beaten up by the side of the road and the Samaritan comes past, helps him up in great danger to himself and takes him to the local inn and pays the innkeeper to look after him. There were inns in the first century when you're on a long trip on the road to Jericho. Bethlehem is just a short bus ride. I've done it out of Jerusalem. It'd be a reasonable half day's walk. Do you need an inn there? No. If you are planning a good small business, would you put an inn in Bethlehem? Is there anything there worth visiting? A beach, perhaps? Water views? Historical buildings? Well, yes, now, but not back in the first century. There is no inn in Bethlehem. Yes, I follow the logic, Sean, you say, but have a look at the verse. Because there was no room for them in the inn. It's got two ends. It's an inn. Well, there was a word for inn. And there was an inn in Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan. It's in Luke's Gospel. But he uses a different word here. It's not the word for in. It's the word for guest room. And some of you who have the new NIV and perhaps use your phones or have bought a Bible in the last 15 years, sorry, five years since it was released, will be wondering what this whole thing is about because it clearly says guest room. Because to their credit, the translators of the NIV, when they revised their translation and looked at the original language, realised they'd made a mistake back in 1984. And so many Christmas cards have got it wrong since. It's guest room. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in an animal food box because there was no guest room for them. If only David had had family in Bethlehem, someone he could stay with, with a guest room. Hang on a moment. 
David, did he have family in Bethlehem? He's not from there, he's from Nazareth. But what's his connection to Bethlehem? Why has he gone there? Everyone had to go to their hometown to visit. His hometown, his family's hometown is Bethlehem. There were plenty of people from his family in Bethlehem. Do you think any of them had a house big enough with a guest room? It's the house of David, King David. Remember him? I reckon some of them would have had a guest room and surely some of them were sleeping in the bed already. I'm sure they got there first. But a pregnant woman who's about to pop turns up and there's no guest room for them. Why not? That's the question. That's the question we should ask, and it's not obvious to us. But I'm sure it was obvious when Luke wrote in the first century. Why is there no guest room for them? The two key words in this verse are for them. What is it about them which meant there was no guest room? What is it about Mary and Joseph and this baby that means no one wants to have them in their house? Would you remember the story about Mary? She's pledged to be married to Joseph. She's an unwed mother. And in the first century, that is a big deal. That is a cause of great shame to her and to her man and to her family and anyone who associates with her. You may think this is totally weird, but I was talking to someone at one of the morning services. She used to volunteer at a refuge for unwed young mothers. And when she took them to the shops and they figured that this lady was their mother... One time, someone spat at her because she was so shameful. When was this dark ages? In the 1980s. So you can bet your bottom dollar in the first century there was no guest room for Joseph and Mary and Jesus. Do you see what this says about Jesus? Even before he was born, he was rejected. And his birth is just the beginning, isn't it? He had a life of rejection. Herod, do you remember him? Tried to kill Jesus. That's a fairly extreme form of rejection. So he became a refugee in Egypt. When he finally came back to Nazareth, you can imagine the snide remarks and the names he would be called amongst the other children, and the parents got the same treatment. When he started his own ministry, his own family thought he was mad. Inside Nazareth, they said, isn't this Joseph's son, and rejected him? Outside Nazareth, they said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The leaders wanted to kill him? And it happened when his own friend betrayed him with a kiss and the rest of his friends deserted him. At his birth, he was rejected. In his life, he was rejected. If it is that we ask this question, is there room for me? 
If we are constantly wondering whether others will accept us and whether God will accept us, and we may even wonder, does anyone understand this fear that I have and what it's like to be rejected, then Jesus is the answer, isn't he? He knows what it's like to be rejected. When he entered the world, as he lived, and when he left the world in death. You can trust him to understand. You can talk to him about it. For he led a life of rejection. And that's got to beg the question, doesn't it? If God is the one in charge of all of this, if God is the one who sent Jesus, why on earth did he send Jesus to be rejected? When my children were about to arrive, we went to a fair bit of trouble. I'm not a particular fan of baby shops, but we spent a lot of time there and I bought a lot of the things. We didn't buy a manger, they weren't available, but we bought the best cradle we could get because my child ought to have a good bed. I made sure everyone knew and would welcome in this child. And as my children have grown and have experienced various things, I've done what I could to ensure that they would be accepted by other people. That's what I wanted. Well, God hasn't done that, has he? with his own son. He arranged for a census of the entire Roman world to get his son to the right town at the right time. But he failed to get a good bed for him when he arrived. Did he fail? No. Surely that was part of the plan too. An animal food box was just right for my son, said God. A birth of shame and rejection. Why would God do that? Why would he send Jesus to be rejected? Well, I think there are plenty of clues throughout Jesus' life as Luke presents it for us. Jesus accepted the rejected ones. In the very next verse, who are the first people to hear about the birth of this baby and that it has been born and placed in a manger? Uh, it's not the court officials, the rich people. It's not the Romans. It's not the king. It's the shepherds. And we might have some weird romantic idea about shepherds. I saw shepherds wandering around in the Middle East and my son said to me, why don't they get a real job? What are they wandering around doing that for? And I said, maybe they can't get another job. It's down and out type stuff. Jesus accepted the sick and the unclean, didn't he? The lepers and the blind and the lame and the poor. And he had a special acceptance for women compared to the men around him. He ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. He was so accepting of those who were rejected that he himself got more rejected by other people. He not only understands what it's like to be rejected, he accepts those 
who are rejected. That's good news, isn't it? And I think that's a clue. That's a clue as to why God made sure that his own son was rejected. I think it becomes really clear in the last part of Jesus' life when he's not in a wooden food box, he's on a wooden cross. Let's have a look at it here on the screen from Luke 23. He's betrayed, like I said, by one of his friends. He's deserted by the rest of his friends. He's rejected by the leaders. And the Romans hung him up on a cross to die because that was the best way to shame someone in front of everyone. So the passers-by hurled their insults at him. And even the criminal next to him who deserves to be executed mocks him. His exit makes his entrance look like a royal red carpet reception. It's the ultimate in shame and rejection. And at that point, he shows to someone else the ultimate acceptance. Have a look at this criminal here. He simply asks for one simple thing. Verse 42. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now Jesus could have simply said, I will. I won't forget your face. I'm not going to remember the mo- not going to forget the moment when I'm dying. I'll remember you. But he doesn't say that. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now our eyes immediately focus on the word paradise. We think of a Fijian resort or something. It's not that, is it? It's heaven where God makes everything right. But I don't think that's the most important thing in this promise. I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. See the pronouns here. They're the ones that matter, I think. You. You who know you deserve to be executed. You, the rejected one, the shameful one. You will be with me, God's son. Remember in Luke 2, there was no room for them in Joseph's family. And Jesus says to the criminal who knows he deserves to be executed, his crime was that bad, there's room for you with me. Why would God do it this way? Why would he deliberately send Jesus to be rejected? Here is the answer. Jesus was rejected so that this man could be accepted. And of course, not just him, obviously. The rest of Luke's gospel shows that it's for all rejected 
There are those of us, of course, who are filled with confidence and think that no one would turn us down, that we're God's gift to the world and that God wouldn't turn us down. We're confident that he would want us on his team. The rest of us who are in touch with reality and know ourselves know that we have shame as well. And we do wonder, if God was in his right mind, would there be room for me with God? But whether you are filled with overconfidence or you lack confidence, the key issue is still the same. Why would God send Jesus to be rejected? Why would he send him to die? And the answer is that he sent him to take our shame, to take our rejection, so that we could be accepted. Who does God do this for? What do you need to do for this to be true for you? This man shows it very clearly. He admits something. Do you remember? We are getting what our deeds deserve. The shame's mine. I should be rejected. There should be no room for me. He admits it and then he simply asks, remember me. I wonder, have you done that? Have you been like this criminal who knew his shame and asked? If you have, then these words are precious words, aren't they? When Jesus came, there was no room for them. But he came so that he might say, you will be with me. Jesus was rejected so that we could be accepted. What could be more precious than that? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, We thank you for the terrific stories of Christmas. And Father, we thank you that when we get to dig down into them, we find further and greater treasures. Father, we thank you for this great treasure that you deliberately sent your son to be rejected because of shame. For he came to deal with our shame that we might be accepted. Father, help us, all of us, to understand what it means to admit, to admit what our deeds deserve and to understand what it means to ask. And Father, if we have admitted and have asked, Father, we pray that we would see how grateful we need to be that Jesus came to be rejected and that we might rejoice to know that there is room for us with him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.